Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're going to be taking a break from our studies in 2 Corinthians this week. Uh, today is Friday, May 21st, 2021. And last Monday was Shavuot, or more familiarly, familiarly known as the Day of Pentecost. And in every synagogue in the world, on Shavuot, the Book of Ruth, the short four-chapter book, uh, this romance, is read uh, all over the world. Um, Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible, and it is traditional to read this book on Shavuot because the events of Ruth take place during the time that the book of Ruth takes place, during that same time of year, between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, between Shavuot and, uh, I'm sorry, between Passover and Shavuot. And uh, on Tuesday, Robin and I were invited to participate and an international online Shavuot conference. It was uh, really a pleasure to do that. It was hosted by friends in South Africa. There were 10 nations involved. And uh, Robin taught on Ruth, the woman of valor, and I taught on Boaz. So I thought, why reinvent the wheel and just not share the same teaching again this morning with you? So uh, without further ado, we're going to get right into the teaching, which I've entitled Boaz, the Kinsman Redeemer. Or another title might be Boaz, the Great Man of Valor. Uh, we could also call it Boaz, Shadows of Messiah, because Boaz, in every detail in the book of Ruth, is a picture of Yeshua, our Goel, our kinsman, Redeemer. So, a little background, um, just to point out a few things before I actually get into the reading of Ruth. And that is this, Boaz's name is spelled, as you see on the screen, going from right to left, Beit, Ayan, Zion, Boaz. And the main part of his name is comprised of this last two letters, which spells the word Oz, or Oz, which means strength. Oz is strength. And uh, there are a number of places in the scriptures where God is referred to as being O's, being strong. Uh, that first letter is a preposition, and in your Hebrew Bible, have a dot in the middle, which gives it the hard B sound, and then has a vowel point above, which makes it the sound bow. And whenever you put bow at the front of a word, it means in or with. So Boaz would be in him is strength, or with him is strength, or strength is with him. But um, everything about Boaz's name speaks strength. And one of the things a kinsman redeemer must have is strength. Now, Boaz, who is a Jew, marries, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, marries a Moabitess, uh, Ruth, who's a Gentile. And these two come together, and at the end of the book, spoiler alert, they get married and they become the great-grandparents of King David. Now, Ruth is the only woman in the Bible who's called an Ishet Kyle, a woman of valor. A woman of valor, and you'll come across that as you read through the book of Ruth. The only woman. And then Solomon, many years later, Solomon, their great-great-grandson, ended the book of Proverbs with a 22-verse section called the Ishit Kyle, the woman of valor. It uh, begins with, a woman of valor, who can find? Far beyond rubies is her value. 
and he goes through the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with the next letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet and going through all 22 letters. And he, he describes this amazing woman of valor. And so we must believe that when he wrote this, he was memorializing his great-great-grandmother, Ruth, the only woman in the Bible called a woman of valor. But how about his great-great-grandfather, Boaz? Did he memorialize him? And we find that indeed he did. If you recall, Solomon is the one who built the first temple. Uh, David wanted to build a temple, but God says, no, your son will build it for me. And so David's son, Solomon, did indeed build the temple. Thus is called Solomon's temple. And it's described both in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles 3.17, it says that he erected the pillars in front of the temple, one on the right and the other on the left, and named the one on the right Yachin and the one on the left Boaz. So here we see Solomon memorializing his great-great-grandfather, not with a beautiful passage of Scripture, but in the form of a column that bears Boaz's name. Now, this is significant. Think about this for a moment. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, the greatest king of Israel, builds the temple, and he also writes the book of Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs. And he memorializes his great-great-grandparents who whose story is recorded in the book of Ruth, which everyone knew at that time. And so to memorialize Ruth, he writes the Ishit Kyle, and to memorialize his great-great-grandfather Boaz, he names a column, column at the front of the temple with his name. And it tells us very specifically that the column on the right is named Yachin, and the column on the left is named Boaz. How did he, why did he memorialize them in these two completely different ways? Well, what we see here is a picture, a, a very spiritual picture of the feminine and the masculine. The masculine is considered to be the strong and the more physical. And as you've always hear, heard me say, the feminine, the woman, is always the more spiritual. And so, true to form, Solomon memorializes Ruth as something very spiritual. Words with words that are part of our scriptures, with the description of the Ishit Kyle. But his great-great-grandfather Boaz, he memorializes something very physical, something that represents strength. And he memorializes Boaz, whose name means in him is strength, with a column at the front of the temple. Now we have to ask the question, well, who is this Yachin character? And Yachin is indeed a man's name. And you do find Yachin in the Bible, but we find no details about him whatsoever. If I remember correctly, he is one of Simeon's sons, and that is about as much as we know. And I think there might even be another Yachin later on, but it's, there's, they're basically a nobody. In Scripture, there's no detail, no accomplishments recorded. So the rabbis believe that uh, when we see the name Yachin, we're not to think of a person, but we're to translate the name by what it means. And the name Yaquin means he will establish. And in both 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, it's crystal clear that the Yaquin column is on the right 
and the Boaz column is the one on the left. And I think that's because God wants us to read the message from right to left. Hebrew reads from right to left. And so if we just simply translate Yachin into English, it means he will establish, and then Boaz. So these two columns give us a message. He, God, will establish Boaz. And I do believe that the rabbis are correct on this. So once again, Ruth memorialized in the immortal words of the Ishit Kyle in Proverbs 31. And Boaz memorialized in this message as you enter the temple. He will establish strength. You know, as we always say, the right is the spiritual, the left is the physical. Well, who is the he of the word Yachin? God, God who is spirit. Boaz, on the other hand, was a human being who was born, lived, and died here on earth. So again, we see the right is the spiritual, the left is the physical. Well, anyways, we need to move on. And, um, I, but I have to share this verse. I just love this. In Psalm 96, 6, it says, Splendor and majesty are before him, before God. Strength, and there's our word, oz, which is the, the last two letters of Boaz's name, Strength and beauty, which is tiferet in Hebrew, which is, uh, of all the words for beauty in Hebrew, tiferet is my favorite. And I've taught on this word before. Wonderful word. And that's the word that is chosen here. And and, uh, I believe David wrote Psalm 96. We don't know. The author is not recorded, but we'll just assume David did write it. And he says, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, what's interesting is that you see two letters of Boaz's name in the word for strength. And you see two letters of Ruth's name right here at the end of Tiferet, Resh Tav. And I don't mean for that to be an arrow. They're just a line. Resh Tav. Ruth's name is spelled Resh Vav Tav. So we see two letters from her name at the end of Tiferet and the two letters from Boaz's name in the word for strength. Maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think so. God's holy tongue and his scriptures that were inspired by God himself. I believe every jot and tittle is placed there specifically, and God has hidden all kinds of messages for us to, to search out and discover. So, let's continue. Let's get into Ruth. Boaz is this amazing picture of Messiah, and I hope that by the end of this, the study, you'll agree with me, and you'll look at Boaz in a completely different light and uh, begin to realize just how powerful and important this book of Ruth is. So let's pick it up where Boaz enters the story. In chapter 1, you know uh, Ruth and uh, is married to Naomi's son. Well, let's back up a bit. Naomi and Elimelech are a Jewish couple who live in Bethlehem. They have two sons, Machlon and Kilion, and a famine comes to the land. So they move east, not very far. From Bethlehem, I've been at Bethlehem, and it's up on a hill, and when you look east on a clear day, you can see the Jordan River and uh, and just a little bit of the Dead Sea down to the south, and right across, that's Moab. You can see Moab from the the mountain of, of Bethlehem. And so they didn't move very far, but they did move. And back then, any kind of travel was difficult. They go to Moab. While they are there, 
Elimelech dies. And the two sons, Machlon and Kilion, marry two Moabitesses. Uh, one marries Ruth, and the other marries Orpah. Then the sons die, so Naomi's left with two daughters-in-law, no husbands. And so she decides to go back to Bethlehem after 10 years in Moab. She hears that there is food once again in Bethlehem, decides to go back. Her daughters-in-law follow her to a point. Then she says, go back home, find a husband, have children, start a family, don't come with me. So Orpah kisses her and goes back. But Ruth clings to her, says, don't discourage me from following you. Your God's going to be my God. Your people, my people. Where you live, I'm going to live. And where you die and are buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. I'm sticking with you, Naomi. So Ruth came across with her. What courage this woman had. What faith she had in the God of Naomi, the God of Israel. And uh, if only we could have that courage and faith to follow God so wholeheartedly as Ruth did. So she comes to Bethlehem. And Ruth and Naomi have no money, and uh, the only way to get food is to go glean in the fields, which is something the Torah provides for. It was the time of the barley harvest, and so Ruth goes out to a field, and she begins to pick up the grain and the, the stalks that have fallen to the ground. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a, uh, a, a kinsman. Now the word here is not goel. It just simply means a kinsman, a relative of her husband, a man of great valor, an Ish Gibor Kyle. That is what it looks like in Hebrew. I mentioned that Ruth is the only woman in the Bible called an Ishet Kyle, a woman of valor. And there are a few men in the Bible called an Ish, uh, Ish Kyle, but there's only one man called an Ish Gibor Kyle. Gibor means a powerful man, a man of great valor, a powerful man of valor. He's the only one. And it's wonderful to think that this Ish Gibor Kyle married the only Ishet Kyle in the Bible. And uh, no wonder that their great grandson uh, became King David and their great great grandson, King Solomon. And then we come down to verse 5. It says, Then Boaz said to his servant, who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is that? Who is that girl? So we see here that he notices Ruth before she notices him. This is the same with our Redeemer and with us. Before we ever knew him, ever took notice of him, uh, before we ever learned about him, he had his eye on us. He's been watching us from the very beginning. And so Boaz speaks to Ruth. He says to her, listen carefully, my daughter. Notice that his first word to her is Shema. It's the feminine form. He says, listen, hear. Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. So we see some of Boaz's attributes. First is hospitality. He says, don't glean anywhere else. You stay here with my field. Work alongside my maids. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. 
So there's protection as well. And he says, I, I, I'm watching out for you. I'm not going to let anyone harm you. You stay here, you'll be safe. And he says, when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. In other words, though I provide water for my servants, and that water is not meant for other people, it's meant for you. You're included. You come, and even though I'm not paying you to work in my fields, I want you to come and drink the same water that they drink. And so you see this inclusion and provision for her. And then in verse 11, uh, well, verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I'm a Gentile. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Look at his awareness. Turns out he has done his homework. He knows everything about Ruth. And our Redeemer knows everything about you and me. And he extends hospitality and protection. He includes us among his people and he's aware of everything about us. And even though he's aware of everything about us, he does not reject us. And even though the Torah forbids a Jew to marry a Moabite, we see that Boaz, nonetheless, nevertheless, he he includes Ruth. And he's aware of her background. As we go on, we come to verse 12. May Adonai reward your work and your wages be full from Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. We see that Boaz is a source of blessing to Ruth. He blesses her. Verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my master, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like one of your maidservants. I'm not Jewish. So we see his acceptance of her. We see his comfort of her. And then in verse 14, it says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar, vinegar and olive oil, of course. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So he provides provision and food for her. And then in 15 and 16, it says, When she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, not just in the back where the small stuff is. Let her go right among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So Boaz on, on the QT, tells his servants, leave extra for her. Let her go right among the sheaves. He's so generous to her, so gentle to her. And he is working behind the scenes to bless her and to make her life a bit easier. When you look at all these attributes of Boaz, his hospitality, protection, his inclusion, his awareness, his, his blessing, his acceptance, comfort, provision, generosity, gentleness we begin to see a picture of our Messiah, Yeshua, 
who has extended all of these things to us as Gentiles. And uh, what a great man Boaz truly was. And no wonder he deserved to be the ancestor of King David and also of Solomon. And we go on down now to verse 20. Ruth comes home, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Adonai, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man, because Ruth had told her whose field she had gleaned in, Naomi tells her, The man is our Goel. The man is our Goel. So in verse 20, Ruth's discovery, Boaz is her Goel. We don't really have a word in English to translate this word goel, but it's a very important word in Scripture. And it's translated all different ways as a a kinsman and also as a redeemer. Those are the two main ways because the word goel means a kinsman redeemer. So we're going to take a little break from our story, from the narrative, and let's look at this word and what it means. There are two questions we want to ask. First of all, What are the responsibilities of a goel? What makes a goel a goel? And the Torah describes three things that makes a goel a goel. Number one, his first responsibility is to restore a lost inheritance. Um, So, in the Torah, if you are a, a Jew who lives in Canaan, you've received an inheritance from God. There was a a lot cast and an assigned piece of property belongs to you and your family forever. If you fall upon hard times, you might sell a piece of that property because you need the money. But even if you sell it, it only belongs to the other person until the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, that property comes back into your family. It always is restored back. So let's say you sell a piece of property because you need the money. If you have a Goel, a kinsman redeemer, his job, if he can, is to not wait till the year of Jubilee, but to buy that property back and restore it to you, restore your inheritance. We find this described in Leviticus 25. In fact, the entire chapter of Leviticus 25, you could call it the chapter of the Goel because it talks about redemption. And so you can study that on your own. But in verse 25, it says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest, his goel is the word. His goel is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So one of the jobs of the goel is to restore a lost inheritance. Now let's carry this over to our goel, our Redeemer, Yeshua. We tend to think only that of what Yeshua accomplished by redeeming us and by saving us from sin and death and, and making us his bride. But there's something very important, a great theme in Scripture that we can often miss if we, we don't watch for it. And that is not only did he come to buy the bride, to redeem the bride, to redeem us, human, uh, humankind, He also came to redeem the planet itself. He came to restore the lost property. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, 
they gave their, basically their birthright over to the enemy. And, um, and so at that point, Hasatan, Satan, became the one who Adam and Eve sold out the earth to. If you recall, when, when Satan took Yeshua and tempted him, when Yeshua was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, the last temptation was this. He took Yeshua up onto a great and high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, see all these kingdoms? He says, they're mine to give to whomever I will. And Yeshua didn't argue with him. And he says, all you have to do is just bow down. It'll just be between you and me. Nobody else will know. Just bow down. Bow down and worship me. And they're all yours. And again, Yeshua didn't argue with them, saying, no, these aren't yours. He realizes that Adam and Eve, who were the guardians of planet Earth, they took their inheritance, and when they sinned, they abdicated their inheritance to the enemy. Part of Yeshua's work is to redeem the planet back, to reclaim the lost property and restore it to us. We find this um, referred to in... um, in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19, it says that the anxious longing of the creation of the earth, the created realm, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, the whole creation is in pain. The entire creation is groaning. It's under a curse. That's why the creation, as beautiful as it is, is still dying. Things die. Animals are eating other animals. And uh, things grow old and corrupt and die. And verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, awaiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, i.e., the redemption of our bodies. Because you see, the physical body is part of this creation. It's made of the dust of the earth. It's made of water. It's made of physical substance. And being part of of the physical world, which is under a curse, these bodies also, they corrupt and they grow weak, they grow old, and they die. And so our bodies themselves are part of this creation that God has come to redeem. And the day is coming when God will claim back what has been redeemed through Messiah, and he will restore it to the race of Adam and Eve. What a day that's going to be. We should all be groaning for that day. And I think we all are, whether we realize it or not. Because we all know somehow growing old and weak and dying is somehow unnatural. We weren't created for this. But there's a, there's a morning coming when there will be no more curse. There will be a renewed heavens and earth. And uh, what a day that's going to be. That's something to look forward to. All right, let's move on. The second responsibility of a goel is to rescue another from poverty. So not only restore lost property, but to restore lost freedom. 
And Leviticus 25, 47 to 49 says, Now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman, a Jewish brother or sister of yours, becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have geulah, redemption, which comes from the word goel, redeemer, right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. Look how many times the word redeem, all forms of the word goel, are used in this passage. So here, instead of selling property, maybe you've already sold the property, here you sell yourself because you simply are just mired in poverty. And so the kinsman redeemer can come and purchase you back, restore your lost freedom. Sunday evening we had a Shavuot conference, or not conference, but a a service at Beth Takun. And um, I shared at the service, I read the book of Ruth, and uh, as I was preparing, I kept thinking about what do we have to bring to God? You know, if we're the bride of Messiah, and in ancient times, and even in many places in the world today, the bride brings a dowry. She brings wealth to put there at the feet of her, her bridegroom to give to him. And here we are. What do we have as gifts to lay at the feet of our kinsman redeemer, Yeshua the Messiah? What do we have? Well, Shavuot comes 50 days after Passover. And at Passover, that first Passover when Israel uh, took the, the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost, they took the body of the lamb and roasted it and ate it, they received two gifts from God. Through the blood of the lamb, they were passed from death to life. Through the body of the lamb, they were passed from slavery to freedom. So God freely and graciously gave them two gifts, life and freedom. And the two are very closely related. Life and freedom. And the message here is that the two things God gave us at Passover, the only two things we have to give him at Shavuot. Shavuot, which is always seen to be a wedding ceremony. There's a hoopah of the clouds over Mount Sinai. There's uh, the ketubah, which is the Torah, the Ten Commandments that God gave. There's the wedding ring, which is the Sabbath. And even the, the prophet Jeremiah himself, as he, he speaks for God in Jeremiah 31, refers to that as a wedding ceremony where God takes Israel as his wife. And what do they have to give? Their life and their freedom. The two things God had given them. And that's the only thing you and I have to give to the Lord. And, you know, after God spoke there on Shavuot, Moses went up onto the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the next chapter, we read the first commandment that God gave Moses, the first of the, the Mishpatim. And it is this. He says that if a man is indentured to another man, he is a slave to another man, he's to serve him 
for six years, and then in the, uh, at the end of that, he's given his freedom. He's free to go. But if the man says, I love my master, ahavti Adonai, I love my master, I love my Lord, the one who owned me. He says, I will not go free. That's his choice. In other words, his first decision is a free moral agent who's just been set free from this servitude. He's been given his freedom. Your life is your own. You can do what you want. And then he chooses as a free man to say, I'm going to keep serving my master. So as a free man, I take my freedom of my life and I give it back to the one who gave it to me. I believe that's what God calls us to do. It's what he hopes we'll do. And I think that's what rejoices his heart. Because I know this, the most miserable people in the world I know are those who accept Yeshua as their Savior, and they're, they're, they're thrilled to receive life and freedom, and then they hang on to it for their own sakes. And what does the Master say? Whoever holds on to his life will lose it. Whoever lays down his life for my sake, the same will find it. So I urge you to take the gifts God has given you through our Passover lamb, Yeshua, our freedom and our lives, and then lay them down at his feet and say, I'm yours. I will not go free. I love my master. I want to stay here. So anyways, what is the third responsibility of a go well? The third one is to avenge a wrongful death. In Numbers 35, verses 10 to 12, and then skip to 19, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge for the Now, your translation may say avenger, but the word in Hebrew is goel. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the goel, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The blood goel, the blood avenger himself, shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Yeshua came and he came to redeem us. He came to redeem our freedom. And the third thing he will do is avenge the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. So we see in Revelation all three of these things come to fruition, come to completion. And uh, that's a day to look forward to when finally the last enemy that is destroyed, that enemy is death itself. So those are the three responsibilities of the Goel. But what are the qualifications of a Goel? How do you become one? And there are two things. To be a kinsman redeemer, you must first of all be a kinsman. You have to be related. You have to be a flesh and blood relation. And the second thing is you must have the wherewithal to do it. You must have wealth. Boaz had both of these. He was a kinsman and he was wealthy. Now, when you think of Yeshua, he could only provide salvation for us 
if he, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Until he was born of a woman in Bethlehem, he was not a kinsman. But when he took on flesh and blood, when he became a son of Adam and Eve, then he became a kinsman, a flesh and blood kinsman to the human race. But he also had to have wealth. But what kind of wealth are we talking about? Well, certainly it wasn't silver and gold and riches. His wealth was in his righteousness, his purity, his sinlessness. Because a sinful human being, a broken and, and damaged human being like us, could not redeem the world. He had to become a kinsman. He had to become flesh and blood. But he had to be perfect. He had to be sinless. He had to be utterly righteous and selfless. And he was. So you see the two things that made Yeshua qualified to be our, our kinsman redeemer, to become a kinsman, and to have the wealth, the spiritual resources to purchase back mankind and the planet itself. What, a, what an amazing redeemer we have. What an incredible redeemer. Now, I want you to think of something here. Um, when you read the last chapter of Ruth, and I'm going to assume you've all read that. If you haven't, uh, you need to skip ahead. Stop here and read chapters 3 and 4. But we find out that when uh, Ruth approaches Boaz to redeem her, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 12, now it is true, I am a Goel. However, there's a a relative closer than me. There's another Goel who has a closer relationship to you and Naomi than I do. What does this mean? Who could possibly be a closer kinsman to you and me than Yeshua? And the answer is easy. Anybody is a closer relation to you and me than Yeshua. Let me explain. You and I have all sinned, we're all damaged, we all have plenty of shortcomings, we've all been beat up to some degree or other by this world, but Yeshua is sinless, utterly righteous. You and I all have a physical mother and a physical father. Yeshua had a physical mother and only a heavenly father. So you see, you and I are more closely related physically than Yeshua is. And just as Boaz told Ruth, there's another kinsman who's closer than I am. But what we find out is that this other Goel, I'll put O-G here, though he was a closer kinsman, he did not have the wherewithal to purchase Ruth. And that we discover in chapter 4. But Boaz, who is a picture of Messiah, not only is he a kinsman, but he also has the wealth to do the task. So hopefully this will clear up what the imagery is here when it talks about a closer redeemer. And uh, we all have close redeemers. We have closer kinsmen, I should say. But we only have one who can actually accomplish the job. Now when we come to chapter 3, I want you to go down to verse 9. When 
time passes. Um, Naomi tells Ruth, Ruth, we need to take some action here. I need to find you a husband. And there's no better husband in the world than Boaz. And he is our Goel. He's our kinsman redeemer. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all gussied up tonight. It was the heart last day of harvest. Get all uh, primped up and put on your, your, your perfume and your best clothes. And when the sun goes down and when Boaz is done eating and drinking and he and all the other guys are, are stretching out their sleeping bags there on the, and the uh, threshing floor, I want you to sneak up there and I want you to lift his his blanket, his covering, and crawl in there next to him. At his feet is what it says, but I think that might be just figurative of, of lying down next to him. Well, now this took courage. This took a lot of guts, but Ruth did it. And so in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up, and uh, in verse 9 he says, Who are you? <laughs> He's like, hmm, there's somebody here in bed with me. And she answered, I am Ruth, your handmaid. So spread your covering, and the word there is corner. Spread your kanaf over your handmaid, for you are a goel. This is a, a beautiful passage. And Ruth's answer to, to Boaz's question, who are you, is filled with meaning. She says three things. She says, she gives her name, I am Ruth, your ama. Ama means handmaid. I am yours. I'm your handmaid. Not theirs, not anyone else's. I'm yours. I'm your handmaid. And then she says, spread your kanaf. Kanaf means corner. And um, it's on the kanaf of a four-cornered garment that a man would attach the zitzitz, the, the symbol that he is in covenant with God, and that he keeps the commandments. And um, at the end of Malachi... It says that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his kanafs, in his corners. And of course, you know the story about the woman who had the issue of blood. And she, uh, she snuck up. Is that, I think snuck is a word. She snuck up behind Yeshua. And she touched the corner of his garment where the zitzit was because she knew that there's a promise of healing in the corners of his garments. And when she touched the corner, she was healed. So Ruth says, spread your kanaf over your ama, your handmaid. It was almost as if she's saying, Boaz, I know on your kanaf is a zitzit, which is a symbol that you are in covenant with God. You keep his commandments. And you are a goel. You're my goel. You're my kinsman redeemer. I'm your handmaid. You're my goel. Please redeem me. What we see here with Ruth is something beautiful that any person who's a true believer has given themselves to the Lord, who have given him their freedom in their life. It's something you've done. You, have, you call yourself Yeshua's servant. And you're asking him to do something for you, to spread his promise over you, his kanaf, the place that has the reminder of God's commandments, a reminder of God's covenant. Say, place that on me, because I belong to you. You are a goel. You're a redeemer. It's a beautiful passage. 
if I, if you'll let me take a little rabbi trail, I'm going to share something with you. You know, Hebrew is the language of transcendence. It's an extraterrestrial language. And the scriptures are so perfect and so perfectly inspired by God that as Yeshua said, not one jot or tittle will pass from the Torah till everything's fulfilled. And by the Torah, I think he means all of the Tanakh, all of the scriptures. And this word ama, which means handmade, has another meaning. In fact, it's used with this other meaning more than it is handmade in scripture. Some of you who know Hebrew knows what this other meaning is. And this word spelled the same, pronounced the same, it's the identical same word. And the word that means handmade, ama, also means a cubit. It's a measure from the elbow to the end of the hand, about 18 inches on average. It's the word for cubit. You think, what in the world's going on here? Well, think for a moment. When you read the description of the tabernacle, you find the word cubit used over and over and over and over again. We are given the length of the courtyard. We're given the height of the curtains, the length of each curtain, the height of the posts. We're given the, the, the measurements for all the panels that make the ceiling and the, the lengths and the thicknesses and the widths of the, the planks, the boards that make up the tabernacle. We're given the, um, in cubits, we're told how many cubits long the screen is where you come in. We're told how many cubits long and tall and wide the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is and the lid, the table of showbread and the menorah and all these, well, not the menorah, but um, the details of the menorah are a bit different. But uh, we're given measures in cubits, 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 over and over and over and over and over again. But the word ama, cubit, means handmade. If you take all the description of the tabernacle in all its excruciating detail and replace the word cubit with handmaids, you start to get a picture. It's bizarre that the tabernacle is made of handmaids. It's made in terms of handmaids. So many handmaids long, handmaids tall, handmaids deep. What in the world does this mean? Then you go to the end of Revelation. And the angel shows John the bride of Messiah. And he looks up and he sees the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. And we're told in Peter and elsewhere that we are living stones being built up into this heavenly building, this temple in which God would live. And Yeshua, though we often think of him as being a carpenter, we know that he was not a carpenter. He was a stonemason. So when we realize that the New Jerusalem is the bride, and this New Jerusalem is made out of living stones, one of which is you, one of which is me, you begin to see the connection between cubits and handmaids. There is a hint here in the very word, ama, that the building in which God wants to take up residence is his people, his bride. I was sharing this with Robin just this morning before I came in to record this. 
And she says, well, that's just like in Luke 138, when the angel come and, comes and speaks to Mary, telling her that she's going to, as a virgin, give birth to a child who will be the Messiah. And what is her response? And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. I have to believe that the word for handmaid she used there when she spoke was the word ama. I'm your handmaid, like Ruth told Boaz. I'm your handmaid. And here, the handmaid literally became the housing for God's word, for the Messiah. He lived and grew within her womb. What an amazing picture. So anyways, there's something for you to discuss and think about. But if it sounds a little bizarre, let me just remind you of this. Hebrew is God's language. And for whatever reason, he decided from eternity past that the word ama would mean both cubit and handmaid. There has to be a lesson there for us. Well, Boaz says, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your ama. Spread your kanaf over your ama. You are a goel. And so what does Boaz say in return? Chapter 3, verse 10. Then he said, May you be blessed of Adonai, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not get going after young men, whether rich or poor, poor or rich. What was the first kindness Ruth showed? The first kindness was attaching herself to Naomi and leaving her own land to go live in Naomi's land, to leaving her people to become part of Naomi's people from leaving her gods of Moab to follow the God of Naomi, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to go into this with utter courage out of love for Naomi. Love for Naomi. You know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God was their redeemer. But they left Egypt not because they loved God. They left Egypt because they hated Egypt. But here, during this same time of year, Ruth takes a journey. But her journey is not based on hatred of Moab. It's based on love for Naomi. And she had seen enough of Naomi that she thought, I want Naomi's people. I want Naomi's God. I want Naomi's land. I want to be with her. I've seen something in her, and I want that. Do people see that in you? Do people see enough of God in you? And even though Naomi called herself bitter because she was, she was a little depressed from losing her, her husband and her two sons. But even then, Ruth saw in Naomi something she wanted and she's willing to risk her entire life and freedom on. And uh, what a wise and courageous woman. We're to be a, a Naomi. We're to, we're to be a Ruth, I should say. So, what do we see going on? First of all, Boaz praises Ruth's conduct. Then in verse 11, he says, Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a, an Ishit Kyle, a woman of valor. He comforts her, says, Don't be afraid. And he promises to answer her request. So what does Yeshua say? He says to his disciples, those who follow him, says, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I'll do it for you. 
And Boaz is saying, Ruth, I'll do anything for you. But then it goes on, verse 12. Now it is true I am a goel. However, there is a relative closer than me. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you, but if he does not. I, I think when I read that, when he says, if he'll redeem you, good, let him redeem you. I think Boaz is saying, yeah, you got another kinsman. Let him take his best shot. It won't work. I'll redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Adonai lives. And then he says, lie down until morning. So he promises to answer a request. He promises to take care of everything. And then he tells her to rest until morning. You know, what is being described here is the period of time in which we live. Because we're waiting for our Redeemer to return. We're waiting for him to come and to claim his bride and to reclaim the land that was lost and to avenge our enemy, our killer, Satan. So what do we do in the meantime? We rest until morning. The days are dark, and they seem to be getting darker. It's always darkest before the dawn. And so we're to rest. We're to labor to enter into his rest and to trust that our Redeemer is going to do what he promises to do. He'll take good care of us. He hears our request, and he comforts us. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. And I think the most alarming thing I see among my my brothers and sisters in the Lord that causes me great concern is the amount of fear they have, how cowardly they are. And we need to be strong. We need to be fearless. We need to be faithful. We need to be loving. But a fearful person cannot be any of those things. Let me share something with you that I've been thinking about lately, and I didn't mean to go over this, but let me just share it for a moment. At the end of Revelation... He talks about the people who cannot enter the new Jerusalem. And uh, if I had planned to share this, I would have the verse right here under my nose. Um, But it talks about the number one thing it lists are the cowardly. It lists cowardice as a sin. And uh, what I will have to do is find that and add it to the notes later. I'm not going to take time here in the recording to look up the verse. But it says that the cowardly don't get to enter. And I think, oh my goodness, we need to get some courage. Because to be cowardly is to say God is a liar. He doesn't take care of us. He can't be trusted. He's not, to keep his, not going to keep his word. And the enemy and the things I do see are more powerful than the God who is spirit and who has spoken to my heart and knows that all is going to be well. We can't afford to be cowardly. And again, as I have often said in recent messages, I believe there are dark days ahead. And we need to be bold as lions and courageous and not be fearful. 
And um, as Solomon wrote about the Ishik Kyle, it says, she laughs at the future. Are you laughing? Because you see beyond the darkness ahead and realize your Redeemer is coming. We have to have faith in our Redeemer. Anyways, to completely shift gears, uh, chapter 4 has always been a source of confusion for many people. This is a confusing section for us who live so many thousands of years later in a different culture. But in, in Ruth chapter 4, starting verse 3, um, Boaz sits at the city gates and he gathers 10 of the elders of the city around him and then along comes this other kinsman who's closer to Ruth and Naomi than, than Boaz is. And then he said to the Goel, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. You see, he first of all talks about buying the field, but then he says, but if you'll redeem it, redeem it. Uh, there are two different things here. To buy the field says, yeah, I'll buy the field. In the Jubilee, it goes back to Naomi. But to redeem the field means I buy the field and give it to Naomi now. But as the Redeemer, I'll have some rights to go ahead and farm it and use it. So let's understand what's going on. Elimelech had a field in Bethlehem, but Elimelech dies. When Elimelech died, the field became the property of his two sons. They would divide the inheritance. Machlon would have half the field. Chilion, his other son, would have the other half. Now, Machlon was the husband of Ruth. So when Machlon dies, his half of the field goes to Ruth. Killian's half of the field would go to Orpah, but Orpah turned back. She did not follow Naomi. She says, ah, I'm going to stay here in Moab. I'll, I'll find a husband here. So Killian's half goes back to his mother, Naomi. So here's the state of affairs when chapter 4 takes place. You've got a fields divided, half to Naomi, Half to Ruth, the husband of the dead son, Machlon. So when Boaz brings up the topic to this kinsman, this other kinsman, he talks, first of all, just about what belongs to Naomi. And the guy says, yeah, I'll I'll redeem that. I'll buy that. I'll do it. But then Boaz says, but there's another half to this. Ruth and Naomi, they're a team. They are one. And if you're going to buy the field from Naomi or redeem the field from Naomi, it's a package deal. Good news, you get the whole field. Bad news, it's going to cost you twice as much, and you have to marry Ruth. So this other kinsman redeemer's response is, ah, can't do that. Uh, Sometimes I think he's thinking, yeah, my wife will kill me if I bring home another woman. Say, dear, I have a surprise for you. Um, but uh, he says, can't do it. It had been too expensive for him. Remember this other kinsman. He was a closer kinsman than Boaz, but he didn't have the wherewithal to purchase back the entire field to take on another wife, to raise up children, 
and to do the entire package. So Boaz steps in, and he takes, he, he redeems the field, he marries Ruth. Ruth gives birth, they name him Ovid, which means servant. Ovid grows up, he has a son named Jesse, and then Jesse's son is David. What an amazing story. I'm going to close with this verse, Job 19. We believe Job to be the oldest book in the Bible, even though the events in Job take place after the events of Genesis or during that time period. It was actually written down before Moses wrote down the words of the book of Genesis. And look what Job says. Job's suffering. He doesn't know why he's suffering. But listen to the hope he had in his heart. He says, as for me, I know that my goel lives. I have a goel. He wasn't talking about a physical one. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, after I'm dead and gone, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. His hope in God as his goels, his kinsman redeemer was so great so strong, even in this time of confusion, when he didn't understand why he was going through what he was going through, he still believed he'd see his Redeemer. And in his flesh, he'd be brought back to life and he would see God. Interesting phrase is stand on the earth. It's not a very good translation. It really, literally, to be translated, would be, would arise upon the dust. Al-Afar Yakum. Yakum means to, to rise up above. Afar is the word dust. And though the earth's made of dust, it's not the word earth, it's the word dust. And there are images here of something rising up out of the Afar. The imagery here is quite amazing. And when we look at the story of Yeshua, we realize our kinsman redeemer did die. But he arose, Yakum, he rose up above the dust. And um, he's going to rise above our dust. From dust we come, we came, and back to dust we go. But our Redeemer will take a stand. He will arise above the dust. And in our flesh, we too will see God. What an incredible, incredible promise we have here. From the oldest book in the Bible. Okay, discussion questions. First of all, from memory, if you're with your discussion group, great. If not, just close your eyes and from memory, try to identify as many parallels between Boaz and Yeshua as you can. And, you know, it wouldn't take too much digging to find others that I missed. Second, from memory, identify as many parallels between Ruth and the redeemed community as you can. Us, the church, okay? Uh, the community of believers. How many parallels between Ruth and us can you come up with? In what areas, question number three, in what areas of your life are you like Ruth? Now think of all the qualities of Ruth as Ishit Kyle. And you might want to go to the last 22 verses of Proverbs and read Ishit Kyle 
and ask yourself, how many uh, of these attributes do I have in my own life? But then also, second part, in what areas are you like Orpah? Remember, Orpah, she kissed Naomi, but she turned back. She didn't follow. She kissed her, but Ruth, it says, clung to her. All of us have areas in our lives that are more like Orpah than like Ruth. We need to fix those. Read Exodus 15, 13, and I have it in the notes. Exodus 15, 13 says this. You have led in your steadfast loving kindness the people whom you have redeemed. And that's the word goel. You have guided them, <clears throat> excuse me, you have guided them by your strength. And the word there is oz, the part, the last part of Boaz's name. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This verse is from the Song of the Sea. After Israel crossed the Red Sea, they sang this song. This is one of those verses. So read Exodus 15, 13 and discuss it. What shadows of this teaching do you find there? What shadows of this teaching do you find there? Remember, when they crossed the Red Sea, the story of Ruth was still quite a ways into the future. Yet there are shadowings, foreshadowings of the story of Ruth in this verse. So it's a, it's a, a fun verse to look into and discuss. So with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, we thank you so much that you are so faithful to us, that you are our kinsman redeemer. Lord, what a great redeemer you are. What an amazing redeemer. And we thank you for loving us so well, for being so faithful, for, Lord, restoring our freedom, for restoring this planet in the day to come soon, restoring your creation. And Father, for taking vengeance of the, upon the one who has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Lord, to restore all the damage that he has done. Father, we thank you. And we rest in your promises and we take courage in them. Knowing that the day comes when you will take your stand upon the earth. And in our flesh, we will see you. Lord, help us to live in the light of your promise. And we give you praise and glory for it. In the name of Yeshua, our Goel, our kinsman redeemer.